Welcome to the Modern Girl Podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Parsons. I'm a certified holistic health coach, intuitive eating specialist, and health at every size advocate. Cozy up with me each week for empowering conversations with ambitious women as we share real stories around our relationships with food, body, and moving through life in the modern world. Hello. Welcome. So happy that you are here with us today. I'm Caitlin Parsons and I've got such an awesome guest on the show. Stephanie Dodier is here with us today and damn, this is a good conversation. I am going to introduce her in just a moment, but before I do, I just wanted to pop in and check in with wherever you're at emotionally right now, because I want to be real. The past month has been full of ups and downs for me personally, and the lows have felt really low. Um, I am not a stranger to depression. It's something that I have <laughs> had many, many bouts with um, at different parts in my life. Some have been more severe than others. Um, and I'm at a place now, I'm so grateful to say where it is farther and fewer between, but when it shows up, it is all kinds of triggering and painful and confusing. And I found myself in somewhat of a depressive place this past month. And I had to sit with that and really feel that and use my tools and use resources and also just be and not do, which is something that has taken me a really long time to get comfortable with because it is so much more in my natural programming to do out of habit and the safety that that has traditionally brought me in the past. But just being and just feeling the feelings has opened up so so many more opportunities to accept myself, love myself, appreciate myself, offer compassion, and learn about what I'm going through in the moment. I also just want to share this with you because this is a common thread that I'm seeing in many different areas of our culture right now. And I don't think that it's being talked about nearly enough. Um, The grief that everybody is experiencing through this pandemic and what's been lost, the unknown and uncertainty that we are currently being faced with, even though there seems to be this shift towards things reopening and and all of this excitement and new energy and so many good things happening at the same time, that doesn't discredit the grief and the loss and, and what we have been stripped of this past year, the freedom that we feel that deep void around that has been stripped away from us. And, you know, this looks different for everybody. And so I just, I want to be real and raw and honest with you and and let you know that I have certainly felt it. And if you are feeling that now, if you felt that recently, if this comes up for you in the future, you are not alone. You are not broken. This is so normal. And I see you. I'm here you. I'm I'm here for you. I'm with you. And I'm so glad that you are in this community because communities have a a really, really incredible, beautiful power to support and hold you when you are going through really tough moments. So I'm here and I am glad you are too. I want to introduce you to my guest now. Stephanie Dodier is a clinical nutritionist. She's also an intuitive eating expert and the host of the Beyond the Food show, which is fabulous, by the way. Make sure you check it out. Her integrative and comprehensive approach helps women take their lives back from diet culture. Her proprietary and countercultural approach, the going beyond the food method, has helped women in over 92 countries seek health beyond dieting. Stephanie was trained at, at the Institute of Holistic Nutrition in Canada and has a degree in health science. 
this is a life-giving conversation. Wherever you're at right now in terms of mood, emotional state, what you're craving, I am so glad that you are about to get into Stephanie's vibe and her energy and her expertise and her truth. We talk about her personal body image story and how she got to where she is now in terms of her radical, just in totally inspiring acceptance of the body that she's in right now and what that took to get to where she is right now and how she essentially change the work that she does and her purpose to reflect that as well. It is freaking awesome and just so inspiring. I can't wait for you to hear and learn from her too. She drops so many just expertise in so much expertise into this conversation. So without further ado, let's jump right on in. Here is Stephanie Dodier. We'll link everything in the show notes and I love you. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Stephanie Dodier. Hello. Welcome. Oh, I'm excited to be here. I am so excited to have you here. So looking forward to this conversation. Let's just jump right in because there is so much that I want to learn about you and just questions that are brewing in my mind. So you ready to do it? Yes, let's do this. Okay, cool. So the first question that we ask everybody who comes on the show is your first body awareness moment. So what did that moment look like for you? And how did that shape your relationship with your body from there and or your relationship with food? Uh, We're going to have to dial back the clock a lot. My first body awareness moment was probably around the age of 10 or 11. And two big points in that story. The first point was at a pool party. I was wearing a blue bathing suit. I was probably 10 years old. And an uncle of mine was a family pool party, and he made a comment on my breasts growing. And he said something around the margin of like, you're going to be like all your aunts, you're going to have big breasts, using other slang language in French. But, and I remember vividly, I still have the picture of me standing on the grass, him pointing at my chest, and, and I'm looking and saying those words. I turned to my mom, not, I understood that something wasn't normal, but I couldn't comprehend And I remember turning to my mom and my mom didn't say anything. Mm -hmm. And I remember being puzzled, but at the same time feeling very uncomfortable in the moment. And then a few months later, I remember going to Weight Watcher for the first time. Mm -hmm. I was like, I just turned 12 years old at that point. And I remember, um, standing on the scale and being weighed because I don't know if they still do that today, but back then in the eighties, they used to weigh you in front of a room. You used to make a big lineup and they used to weigh you every single week. And back then for a 12 year old, there was this old lady in front of me and she was shaking her hand at me and her finger at me saying, you're a bad girl. You ate too much. You gained weight this week. You should chew gum or drink water instead of eating. And again, like I have the moment in my head in the picture and I'm seeing her. And then I clued in that something was wrong with my body. I kind of put the two pieces together. And I remember stepping up the scale and saying, something is wrong with me. And that, from that moment forward, add 25 years to that, up to about my late 30s, that was my thought about my body. Something is wrong with my body. Something is wrong with you and you have to fix it. And that sent me down the path of dieting for 25 years ongoing on and off, like through the cycle of dieting, restricting, gaining weight, losing weight, gaining weight, losing weight for 25 years, always thinking something was wrong with my body And I was a bad person for not being able to fix it. And it's not until my late 30s, 38, 39 years old, that I realized that there could be a possibility 
that actually nothing was wrong. Mm. That's my first body awareness moment. What did you think was wrong when you had, when, when you were having this reaction and this story in your mind, what, what did you think actually, like what about your body was wrong? It was too much. So I was too, so for nobody had explained to me. And I remember that came in through my late thirties that I wasn't my body. So my body was too much. It grew too fast. Like I'm six foot tall. So by the time I was 12, I think I was five, six. Mm -hmm. So I was abnormally tall for my age. And then quote, abnormally fatter or bigger than my quote BMI should be. And so I was too much. Everything was too much about me. And I had a facility in expressing myself and I had a, I had a width about me that made me understood things that other people my age weren't. So I was taking part in an adult conversation and I was too much. Everything that I did was too much. And the, the, the intelligence was okay, but the body that was definitely not okay. And because I wasn't able to fix it, something about me intrinsically, like at the, like the core level needed to be controlled. So it's always this balance of trying to be who I am and then suppressing it both physically, emotionally, and mentally. Mm. Do you remember have any, having any moments simultaneously to your, your thoughts around being too much where you did feel like you were just enough? No. And no. So it was no, all just but, too much. Yeah. Is it crazy? It was, ne- I was never enough. And that's, that's in part, how can I say this? It's in part what made me who I am. I'm a high achiever. I'm a high performer because I was driven from the baseline that I wasn't enough. So in order for me to compensate where I was too much or not enough able to control myself, I'm like in my head, well, we're going to do better in other places. So if you look at school grades, if you later look at career and achievement in career or I was in the field of retail and sales for 15 years. So result in sales accomplishment and winning awards, like everything I tried to offset being too much, not enough in the other part of who I was. Mm-hmm. So today, after doing a ton of personal work, I can see this as a gift. Mm-hmm. I can go back and say, if I hadn't been thinking that I probably wouldn't be where I am and living the life that I want today. But it came at the cost of being completely disconnected from my body and who I was. Mm. Yeah. From what you're sharing, it sounds, it sounds like you're describing this overcompensation and all of these other areas of your life at the expense of, of your body to make up for not being able to quote unquote fix your body like you're describing. Am I hearing you yeah, correctly? Yeah, that's totally it. Yep. So when did you get to that moment or that place in your life where you did have this, would you call it like a light bulb moment where you realized actually I'm, I am, I don't need to be fixed. My body is enough. <laughs> I am fine. What, how did that, how did that come to be in your life? That came, so I left the corporate world um, in, I was 37, 37 years old. I left the corporate world and I went back to school in nutrition and I graduated from there. And right away I went in like performance mode. So I opened a clinic and I built a clinic and I was in clinic when that moment happened. I was doing traditional nutrition clinic, seeing patients one after the other and doing functional nutrition, which is pretty much telling people what to eat and in order to create the desire, their result, they're, they're resulting with a whole bunch of supplements. Right. And I remember being in clinic and having a patient who was coming to me to lose weight and no matter what I did, it didn't work. 
And I remember her being desperately like asking like, what's wrong with me? And she was crying at the same time she was saying that. And then I realized in that moment, I was harming her. I was doing, I was doing harm in a setting where I was supposed to be helping her. And when she was having this moment, I realized that she was me. Mm. Like, you know, I, I have spiritual belief where I believe that the universe brings you everything that you need. And that client, that patient was in front of me because I needed to see that I wasn't alone in disbelief. And when I saw how she was reacting and how, how much pain she was, and I'm like, that's me. Mm. That's how I spend the last 25 years of my life. You mean that there's other people like me? And then I lost her touch with her. And then she came back a few months later and then she brought me a book. She said, I, Stephanie, I, I discovered this book and uh, it changed my life. I'm like, well, what's the book? Health at Every Size from Lindo Bacon. Uh -huh. So she left, she gave me the book, she left. I looked at the book and I read the first few pages and I literally threw it in the garbage because it meant like all my life up to then, all the quote hard work that I had done up to now trying to be better and losing and gaining and all of that was, it was pretty much telling me that I did that for nothing and I didn't have to do it. And I went in complete denial and anger and I threw it out. And that damn book kept coming back to me. <laughs> <laughs> two other ways two other different people that book kept presenting itself to me in different circumstances so by the third time I think a year and a half or two years later like okay like that thing keeps coming I gotta read it and that's when my path changed at that point I was 39 years old so before we get into how your path changed. Yes. Which I am on the edge of my seat. I also am curious how you even got into nutrition in the first place. Hmm. What made you make that choice to change your career to nutrition? Uh, combination of things. So corporate world, uh, Canadian retailer. Um, I had, at the, by the time I was 36 years old, I had reached the top of the ladder in the corporate world. I was the vice president of store operation. And uh, there was only one other level I could go up to, which was president of the company. And I had no interest in that for multiple reasons. I'm not going to get into that, but no interest in that. And then our company got bought by Target. I don't know if you remember, but Target came to Canada for about a period of two and a half years. Mm. And then it didn't work for them. They bought us. So I was presented at 37 with the opportunity to go either go work for Target or take a, believe it or not, an early retirement at 36 years old. So I did. So I took wow. a package out, um, which was very lucrative given the position that I had. And that afforded me an opportunity um, to go back to school. They paid for starting a business or going back to school. So I went back to school. But remember, I was like at the peak of my dieting because as people listening probably know, the more you diet, the harder it is for you to maintain your weight. Mm -hmm. And by the time I was 36, I had seven large weight loss and weight regain. Like we're talking 50 to 100 pounds. Mm. So at 36, my weight was like hard work to maintain. And I was gaining weight just looking at food. This is how screwed up my body, my metabolism was. And what the thought that I had is if I go and become a nutritionist, I'll learn the secret that mm -hmm. I haven't figured out yet. And then that will allow me to control my body. And which is 
I help professional now. And so I, I do a lot of research and, and I think I found out about two years ago, a survey done in Australia among dietetic students and 77% of the students in dietetic in Australia in that survey had disordered eating behavior. And then when asked why they chose the field into which they were expressing such struggle, it was in majority all in an attempt, a secret attempt to trying to control their body. That's, that's so interesting. Just, and I am, I believe it wholeheartedly. I have not seen that study, but there, I've heard this story from so many people who choose this profession and I'm including myself in this too, just this idea of, I'll, I'll learn the secret like you're sharing. I'll be able to fix my body once and for all, whatever that looks like for you. And also just the preoccupation that you're already in with dieting so much and just thinking about food and your body all the time. I don't know if you felt this way at all, Stephanie, but I certainly felt like, well, I'm, I feel like this is my part-time job anyways, just trying to like figure out the best foods and way to move and way to manipulate my body and all these things, I might as well, you know, learn about it and, and make a career out of it. If I'm already putting this much work into it, Did, do you resonate with that at all? Yeah. And because yes. And because it was, it, I was so entrenched in it that it, I thought it was my passion. Mm. Oh yeah. Like, I thought it was like, <laughs> My reason for being on this planet, because, but the truth is now that I peel back the layer, I was spending three hours a day preparing food just because my food got so complicated with the years, but it wasn't passion. It was a passion to control my body so I can at least feel a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I look back at my class, my graduating class, we were all like that. Mm-hmm. Like we were obsessively fueling each other with our obsession with food mm-hmm. and health and healthism and the whole thing. And we fuel each other. And, and the worst thing is that our education system into which we groom health food professional, so call them nutritionists, dietitian, health coaches, Everybody that deals with food, the way the system is structured to educate those folks and the way we teach these professionals to go back into the world and educate the masses, we educate people to become more obsessed with food and teach other people to be obsessed with food. Yeah, it's a broken system. Oh, there's no idea how broken it is. Yeah. It's like if you're if you're sitting there thinking, oh, I'm gonna go and become a health coach or a nutritionist, don't. <laughs> because that is not the way we go out and teach other. It's actually by what I did, just like this client story I was telling you, I created more arm. I took people that weren't obsessed with food and made them obsessed with food. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah. Well, and what's so interesting about how you're describing the class that you were in going through this program is it's such a, it's such a specific sample size of the large majority of our culture. It's just in a controlled container of what everyone's actually doing. It's just possibly a a more hypervigilant group of people because they're actually studying this every day, but the amount of preoccupation and uh, time and energy that most people spend around food and their bodies. It's, it's not that different. I, I would be, I, I would be willing to bet just in my own experience. Well, it depends what group of people you talk to because so in clinic, so the, the first four years of my career in clinic allow me to see a wide sample of the population. And so what I realized when, when, when I went into clinic practice is that, oh my God, not everybody's as obsessed with food as we are. Mm. 
So the way we were trained, we were trained to assess and give this like gigantic report of everything that people were doing wrong and how they could do everything right. Mm -hmm. And I remember giving out those reports the first few times and people thinking and saying to me like, whoa, dude, this is way too much. I just came here like for you to tell me how to eat a little bit better. Now you want to reform my whole life. And I couldn't comprehend at first. I'm like, well, everybody wants to like to be perfect with food, right? And then I quickly realized going down to the mass that it wasn't the case. I was hanging out with people that were obsessed with food. And I thought everybody wanted to do the same thing or had a, a, a goal of doing the same thing. But I realized it's not the case. There's a mass group of people that don't want that. Mm-hmm. That is fascinating. And I'm so grateful that you're bringing this to our conversation too, because um, transparently I recognize this about myself, just being in this, in the intuitive eating and body image industry, where even though we're looking at food in our bodies in a, in a very different way, it's still Mm -hmm. something that we're talking about so much. And so yeah, I, you know, working with clients every day and doing projects around these topics and and even conversations like this, I can certainly find myself getting into that tunnel vision of, well, doesn't everybody, you know, have have these concerns or want to um, heal this part? And, you know, isn't this a struggle for everybody? And you're really bringing up a great point that I need to constantly be reminded of that. No, not <laughs> diet culture is a $72 billion industry. It's massive and it impacts a large majority of of women and men in, in the world, but there are people who live their lives not consumed by this in a way that, uh, the, that the majority is. And so I think what's important to recognize though, is that there's a great difference in the traditional gender grouping. So people identify as men are not as obsessed in majority, or at least five years ago when I was in practice. I don't think it has changed that dramatically. However, when you get to the group of people identify as women, that's different. They're not necessarily obsessed with food, but they're all obsessed with their body. Mm -hmm. Like we got to get more like granular. They all like every single woman that walked in my clinic wanted to lose weight. Mm -hmm. But for some, it stopped when I delivered the plan with the level of complication. They're like, no, that dude, like you just went over the edge. (laughs) Like that's too much. Some of them were just like, yes, that's what I want. But they all wanted to change their body to some degree. Why do you think that is? Oh, do we want to talk about like diet culture? So your audience is familiar with diet culture, but you, you have to take it a step further. So diet culture is a system of belief in which place thinness as a sign of health and moral virtue. That system did not pop out out of thin hair. It was created by another system that's called patriarchy right? Patriarchy is the societal system that plays people identify as men or traditionally white men in position of power and then place women in a subsidiant class there to serve people in power. So patriarchy has, do you want to go down the path of history here? (laughs) Give us the cliff notes because I know this is your, like, this is your zone of genius. And I love talking about this and educating on this too. So I could talk about it for hours, but I'll give you the cliff notes. Give us the cliff notes. So in the late 1800 women, we'll, 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 for the rest of the story here to make things shorter, call it men and women, but I think we're clear on what that means. Thank you for clarifying. So, um, Women were, the feminist movement was born in the mid 1800, mainly to support uh, abolition in both Canada and the States. And once that 
that movement got supported by itself. Women turned around and went about gaining their own power, mainly with the right to own land and have their own money. And the 1900 were mainly dedicated to women claiming back their power at all level. And as this was happening, patriarchy began to be afraid, to be concerned about women's being equal to men. And that's when the first diet became a thing in the early 1900. And then we started to focus a lot on women's beauty. Men created body ideals for women, which were all like small waist, the corset was in place. And then women got more liberated and threw away the corset, but then men created the flap girls where the body was extremely thin and no curve at all. So every time we gain power, the, the flappy girls was created around the right to vote. Um, every time we gain more power through different, um, different level of feminism, different stage of feminism, there was another body type that was pushed by the beauty industry or the weight loss industry or later on the health industry as a mean to keep women obsessed. That's how diet culture was created. So though we were gaining legal power, voting power, money power, the right to work, the right to earn money, we were kept obsessed with our body, with all kinds of industry rising to keep us obsessed, the beauty industry, the weight loss industry. They were all there supporting us, not taking too much space and power. So it's no surprise that today we our group age was raised by moms who were deeply entrenched in that in the 70s and 80s, we're still obsessed with our body. We're just turning the corner where as a group of women, we're waking up like to the big picture and saying like, hold on, no, 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 no. Like you're not going to force me in a body that I don't want to be in order for me to consume all my free time thinking about my body instead of going out and doing things into the world. Mm -hmm. That's how the, to me, that's where, when you look at statistic of marketing and trend, that's where you see the trend of intuitive eating, just like climbing over the last two to three years and health at every size, because women are waking up to that. We're at the beginning of another phase to me of feminism, another stage, depending on the theory you study, either the third or the fourth or the fifth. Right. Where it's going to be body liberation. Yeah. Because uh -huh. we have all the other right, quote unquote, in Western societies, right? Mm -hmm. We have that, but we don't have body liberation. Like, although we could, we're in our mind trapped into these thoughts that keep us chasing the 10 ideal. How is that explanation? So spot on. I'm, my heart is like pounding. I'm like, yes, waking up. <laughs> so I think this actually feeds in perfectly to the next chapter of your story, Stephanie, because it sounds like this was your moment when you mentioned your path changing. This was mm -hmm. your own personal woke moment. And so what is like, tell us about that. What did that look like for you? So for me, it began with taking my skill set as a um, like I have a degree in science and I have a degree in nutrition to take that into this field and start exploring it and realizing that. You know, I had done my job as an evidence-based health practitioner because most of the stuff, the, I was going to use another word, most of the stuff I was pushing out was not supported by evidence. Like this whole weight loss was going to change the world of health was bullshit. When I start scratching and doing the work that Lindo was laying out in her book and I started going back and seeing, is there any evidence to the stuff that I was taught? Nothing. Mm -hmm. I'm like, shit. Like, I just gobbled up what I was told thinking, you know, it's professor, like they, they're in school, it's true, but it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And then I started to question everything that I was taught 
And in the process, realize that the thing that I was doing for myself that I thought were right weren't right. And hence why had been dieting for 25 years and never called being able to fix myself. So I took the journey personally and it came to a point where I couldn't practice the way that I was trained. I couldn't go up in my office and tell people to do what my profession was requiring me to do. So I took the leap of faith and closed my clinic. Oh, wow. And took a, a year off traveling and thinking about what I was going to do. I knew it was going to be what I do now, but in which format. I uh, Back in the days, I don't even think that Evelyn had certification. So I didn't know what I was, I started to do my own thing. And then I came across Evelyn's work and I started to uh, study with her. And then here I am today doing that a hundred percent and online because it's, the thing is, it's my, had a local practice right in Toronto. I couldn't do this work locally because the pool of people was so small. So one of the things I had to do, I had to came to the conclusion that I had to go online to have a bigger pool of people to be able to attract people because just attracting people locally was never going to be sustainable. So I closed my clinic and then went online and created beyond the food. So what did your, what did your personal journey look like in embodying this work? I, I'm hearing a lot of dissonance coming up, which makes so much sense. I have my own personal experience with this as well, too. But Mm. I'm curious about what did that look like for you? Just recognizing this is out of alignment. And I mean, you threw the book away at first. So clearly there was some, some resistance and some avoidance happening. So what did that look like for you to actually realize I have to walk my talk and embody this? I, yeah and it was very um it was very messy in the sense that for whatever was present in my life at the time there was not a clear path so there was the book from health at every size right and then there was the book of intuitive eating but there was no clear path on how to unlearn what i had spent 25 years learning personally and years learning in school. There was no clear path. Like there was no path to say, do this, 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 this. So it's kind of me going about and saying, okay, read this book, read this book. There was no training. There was nothing. So I was like, okay, I'm going to try this. Oh, that doesn't work. And then I quickly realized that I was completely disconnected physically from my body. Like I couldn't feel an ounce of my body. I remember going to a, um, a fascial stretch therapist, called them a massage therapist. And the woman halfway through looked at me and said, like, I don't know that I can work on your body. Like your body is not collaborating with me at all. Like you're fighting me all along. I'm telling you to breathe and you can't like you're completely disconnected from your body. And I remember her touching me in part of my body and I couldn't feel anything. So imagine that state trying to connect to your hunger and fullness. Mm -hmm. It was a mess. (laughs) And other mess. So I spent close to three years piecing the pieces of the puzzle together, like doing some emotional work and then doing some mental work and then doing some physical work, like putting the pieces together to get me to a place where I could become an intuitive eater, that I was connected enough to my body. I could feel my emotion. I could process my emotion. I am like, I, I didn't even know that my thoughts were just stories I was telling myself. Mm. I thought that my thoughts were facts. So if my brain told me, um, you're ugly, it was a fact. Like it wasn't an undying undeniable fact. So there's so many things I had to learn to piece together 
So it was a journey for me of discovery, of, of training and putting it all together to come to a place where I could be an intuitive eater and then I could be neutral with my body because I tried the path of body positivity and that was an other failure. <laughs> like trying Why? To, Tell us about that. Well, like by that time, I gained a whole bunch of weight, which was in itself a trauma, which I didn't know existed, right? And then this body positive movement back six, seven years ago was telling me I needed to love my belly roll. Mm -hmm. Do you know that that created massive cognitive dissonance in my brain? Like I spent 25 years hating on this. Now you tell me I have to love it? No, my brain would have nothing to do with that. Um, I remember going on a trip and, and saying, okay, I'm going to take the next month. And I'm going to love myself. I went on the mission and I stood in front of the mirror and saying, I love my body. I love my body. And I couldn't understand why through looking at myself in the mirror and saying that I felt so terrible inside of me. I didn't understand trauma. I didn't understand how the brain connects with the body. But basically, every time I was doing this, I was exposing myself to trauma. I was reawakening a trauma. Yeah. That's why I felt so terrible. And that's why my brain was fighting me all along. So that didn't work very well. I'm like, okay, that doesn't work. <laughs> what else? And that's when I discovered body neutrality and feminism. And that's the path that I that worked for me and that worked for all the women that I work with because so my clientele or the people that I work with most of the time are long-term dieters. They're people my age, I'm 46. So I tend to attract people 40 plus and the way that they have just like me interacted with their body is a very traumatic experience. So engaging with body positivity is out of the question. That doesn't work. When you go to the world of body neutrality, you're reprogramming or changing the way or the function and purpose of your body from being a sign of your beauty, an art object to a functional part of your life. Like your body has a functional reason for being here and you're its partner and you're supporting the function of your body. It's not a sign of your worth. And that led me down the path of like, why is this all happening in the world of feminism? Mm. God, that's so good. Um, what was the most challenging part of of embracing that, what, what do you feel like was the thing that you resisted the most in just getting to body neutrality for yourself? Mindset. Again, the way that I was being, the way that I was being taught body image, that we look at the, the small section of that in the world, in the work of intuitive eating or in the work of Lindo Bacon, none of it was going in depth to understand why I couldn't just engage with my body with neutrality or with love, whatever the school of thought you're going into. Mm -hmm. And that's not until four years ago when I discovered the last piece of the puzzle, which is mindset and how the brain plays a role into your new way of engaging with food, your new way of engaging with your body. So once I realized that the path to change my body image was through changing the way that I think about my body was one thing, but then I didn't know how to do that. And then that's when I met the world of cognitive behavior therapy that taught me a very specific framework to change my thought. I remember hiring a self-love coach, must have been like seven or eight years ago. And she, she was just telling me, well, you just gotta tell yourself that you love yourself. And I remember coming to a, a, one of the session and she, she was lost. She couldn't understand why, why her technique wasn't working for me. And I remember like just bawling my eyes out, like I'm trying and it's not working and I'm trying and it's not working. It's because 
she didn't have a framework because she had never been traumatized by her body and by dieting. She couldn't comprehend how my body was going through the process of thinking about my body. And then I, I kind of left this relationship with this coach because it just didn't work. And then I came to the world of cognitive behavior therapy. I'm like, holy shit. Mm. Like this is step one, two, three, four, five that I need. And that's why the other body image work didn't work for me. Like I need to understand the brain. I need to reprogram my thoughts to give me what I want in the case of body image. That was the biggest, most difficult part because nobody had put it together for me. Yes. I love that you're bringing in the brain and, and, and how that correlates with body image. I'm also, I'm also curious, well, how do you use that right now for yourself personally? And also with clients right now, where what's been the most helpful in the research that you've done around the brain and CBT and your, your own lived experience in your body? So I'm going to tell you a little bit of a funny story. Um, Back about four or five years ago when I was researching my geeky side of me saying like somebody must have a a method somewhere, right? I came across this book called the body image book. Have you read or have you seen David Kessler? Is that uh, Thomas Cash? Thomas Cash. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It's a white dude. And he wrote this book. He was the pioneer. Listen to this. He was the pioneer in body image research, which almost all affected women. And he was a man. Mm -hmm. His research was good. Like the methodology that he came up with, like he blended it in with cognitive behavior therapy, but there was one segment that didn't work. And the one segment that didn't work is because he was a man. He couldn't understand women. Like one, like if you ask me, what's your biggest pet peeve these days is a man pretending to be able to teach women how to accept their body. Believe it or not, there's still people doing it today. Anyway, this guy did the framework and the research, but he was leading in his book and his research to what he thought was obvious, which is women should love their body because women are their body. So I took part of his methodology. I'm like, that works. And that's exactly what CBT teaches you, right? You've got to change your thoughts. Your thought creates your emotion and your action and your results. But that last piece where ultimately it needs to lead you to body love is absolutely wrong. Because when you do that, when you lead women to think they have to love their body, you keep women in diet culture and patriarchy by thinking they are their body. Yes. That women's body are the thing that define women, which is other bullshit. That's why we got here in the first place. Even if it's a big body, and you say you have to live, love your body, you're still defining this woman as her body. Mm-hmm. We're so much more than this. But because this guy was a man in a patriarchal society, he thought that he was doing good. So that's the framework that I mainly use today, his work, except that last piece. Mm. That last piece for me is body neutrality. And the way to do this work is cognitive behavior therapy, right? The, what is now known as the self-coaching model or um, the model, depending on whoever you're learning from, Mm -hmm. which is circumstance, thought, feeling, action, and results. So we teach people first CBT because the truth is intuitive eating and body image are mindset work. Though Evelyn may not lay it out as such, but when you start picking apart the 10 principles, they're basically cognitive behavior therapy, mm-hmm. right? Changing your thoughts, diet mindset, changing your feeling and how you process your feeling, and then changing the food police and habituation. This is the self-coaching model. I don't know that she even knew that that's what she was doing. It's such a fundamental of human behavior that... People get there without knowing that it's CBT. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so yeah, so for us today, we teach mindset first, and then we teach intuitive eating and body image. So powerful. And I, I mean, truly, I, I love that you made that connection. I've actually never thought about it that way. And it makes so much sense. And mm. I, the, one of the, I've said this before, but one of the things that I love about the intuitive eating model in general is it, it's called intuitive eating, but it actually has so little to do with food and so much yes. to do with mindset and emotions and communication and just all of these tools that we use in everyday life to be a human being that aren't necessarily physical. Mm-hmm. It's beyond the food. Yeah, it's way, yeah. <laughs> well, your marketing is on point, my dear. Well, people don't get it. So don't say it's a good marketing tactic because marketing experts will tell you that's not good. But <laughs> That's the reason why I named it Beyond the Food is because I had five years ago came to that conclusion. Mm, yeah. After doing all this research, it's never about the food. I'm yeah. like, oh, let's call it Beyond the Food. <laughs> yes, it, it truly, it's never, never about the food. Um, <laughs> Stephanie, I'd love to talk about body descriptors with you if you're okay sure. going there. And just from your own personal experience and your professional experience as well. I know that you identify as being in a fat body, correct? Yep. Yep. So tell me a little bit about that. Were you always comfortable using that as a descriptor? Mm. Is that something that you had had to arrive at to feel comfortable using that? And what does it mean to you today versus then? So it it wasn't something that I was comfortable with uh, because fat was a traumatic word for me. So our work, my world is a lot, is a a trauma informed approach. So um, I'm I'm referring to the world, the word trauma a lot, but it's understanding um, that trauma is beyond an experience, right? Trauma is in how your nervous system reacts to a circumstance and encoding this reaction. So every time you're faced with this circumstance, your nervous system goes into reviving this protection mechanism. So for me, the word fat was a traumatic word because that's how people used to tease me in school, or that's how people who wanted to hurt me call me, or that's how I berated myself all the time with. So for me today to call myself fat, is a proof of my recovery because I was able to retrain my brain to see fat as just a descriptor, like being tall or having blue eyes or having short eyes, uh, short hair. It's just a descriptor of a physical attribute. Because of body neutrality, I'm able to see my body as just a functionality of who I am. And that instrument happens to be fat but it doesn't mean anything about me, Stephanie. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. I'm curious how you use the descriptor with your clients and just your community or just people in general. Do you feel like this is something, Mm. is this a word that we need? And I'm, I'm also going to be transparent. I'm speaking from a person in within privilege. And so I, I want to learn from an educational Mm. point of view as well, too. How would you advise using that as a descriptor? There's so many angles to that question. I would say, I think there's two line of work in the non-diet approach. There's the activist line of work where people are out there pushing boundaries socially, politically, economically in order for society to advance to where we're going. So in the case of activism, I think we should push the word fat because by pushing the boundary and getting the word out into the world, that's how we're gonna change how people perceive fatness long-term. If you're a practitioner, I would say be cautious because you're dealing with people's trauma. So when you are in a practitioner coach relationship to a client, the word fat for your client has a baggage to go with it. 
And if the individuals at the beginning of their journey, by using that word, you will reactivate that baggage and you will prevent healing, recovery, or whatever you're doing with them. Two, to most women who have been dieting and have been in large body that are not what I call non-conforming body, so plus size body where people have lived fat phobia or weight stigma from the system, it's a journey to normalize that word. And it doesn't, it's not even the beginning of the journey. Like it's not even a worry at the beginning. There's so much other work that needs to be done before we get there. So if you're a practitioner, I would be really cautious in using that word. Plus, if you have thin privilege, you have, if, if I'm talking to coaches here, you have to establish um permission at the beginning of your relationship. So it's consent. You have to ask your client how, what is the name they're comfortable, the term they're comfortable in referring to their body. That's the first stage of working with people. Or even if you just want to have a conversation with someone, I would, I would advise the same thing. Ask for consent on how they're comfortable referring to their body. I love that. I mean, I'm, I, I think that's such a powerful tool for anybody who's a in the coaching industry or dietetics, nutrition, or just life in general, like you said, it's about consent. It's about creating safety for each other as human beings. And when we create that safety, it's not about rules and rigidity and structure. It's, it's about creating safety for more trusting, beautiful relationships to be able to flourish and develop. So I, I so appreciate you sharing that. I'm also curious, are you, how do you feel? Are there any any labels in the how would you say it? Just the descriptor community of people in marginalized bodies, larger bodies that you just feel like are so uh, barbaric or patriarchal or just don't make sense for where we're headed in this movement right now. Like I'll bring an example up. Like how do you feel about the word plus size? What is that something that you're on board with? Is that a, a phrase that you feel like we should change? And are there any other words that stand out or descriptors? It's not, so I have to be honest, I'm a practitioner at heart. And it's not, these are not questions I spend a lot of time with. Okay. <laughs> because <laughs> in the sense that I spend a lot more time learning about trauma, a lot more time learning on how to help people changing their mindset or feeling their emotion than considering the activist part of my work, mm-hmm. right? So I'm sure there's a whole pile of reason as to why we shouldn't call that plus size. Like if I was to go to either uh, an academic or a feminist activist, she would tell me why. And I would probably agree. I don't have a lot of those formed opinion. Um, for me, what I'm like adamant about is, is the use of body positivity in clinical practice. That's where I'm adamant about, where to me, the concept of body positivity has 100% its place in activism. It does not have its place in clinical practice or any coaching practices to help women because you're actually doing more harm to women, having them loving their body. You're not doing any good to them. That I can talk to you about for hours. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll have to have you back on because I... (laughs) I would love to jam on that. I have, you know, I have so many thoughts on that as well too, for speaking as somebody within privilege, whatever size body you're in, because I do think that it goes back to our body as a form of currency and worthiness in this culture and loving your body. It doesn't matter what size you are as women in this culture, there is there is so much emotion that comes up with thinking Mm -hmm. about that from that place of being too much, not being enough rather than just being and accepting. And it's in part like the reason why I'm so passionate about positivity is because of this awareness around like 
the ultimate reason why diet culture is in place. Like it took me years to understand this because nobody talked about this back then. But when I finally got to that place four years ago to understand like why diet culture even exists, I'm like, shit, like this impacts how I practice, right? This impacts how we talk about food, this impacts how we talk about body. And this requires the need for me to talk about mindset first, because that's how patriarchy gets to us as women is no longer through our action, but through our thinking, mm-hmm. mm. right? That's the only last place that patriarchy has a hold of women is through our mind. Because thank you enough to all the generation prior to us, they got us, again, I'm sure like there's still places where we could do better, but in majority of cases, we have the legal system behind us. And again, there's sector where it's not fully there, but in majority of cases where it's really screwing us up is in our mindset. Yeah, I, yeah, I full heartedly agree. Um, and I'm so grateful that you are, are doing this work and really mm-hmm. spearheading this. It's just, it's so important. It's so powerful. Um, before we wrap today, mm-hmm. if anybody's listening to this conversation and thinking, I, I hate my body right now. I, yeah. I'm just in this place where I do feel like it's always going to be this way, whatever size you are, I hate my body. What would you offer them? A tool, a words of wisdom, a tip of, how they can take action for just the next step, what would you say? The first place that, and I'm going to go in coaching, right? So the first place we want to do is normalization. So when people, when women say that to me, the first place, the first thing I say is I get it. It's 100% normal that you hate your body today. It's 100% normal that you want to lose weight. It's 100% normal that you are focused on your body and food all the time because that's how society is constructed for women to interact with their body. So nothing has gone wrong. There's nothing wrong with these thoughts. There's nothing wrong with you. You are doing exactly what society wants you to do. So let's all take a deep breath. From that place, realize that you don't have to you always have a choice that's the power that we have today as women you have a choice there's nobody that's going to come to your house knock at the door and say you have to lose weight so whatever you do moving forward do it from a place of choice not from a place of i have to take back that power Mm -hmm. if you want to diet do it from a place of I'm choosing to do X, Y, and Z. And then the first thing we teach all of our students is a decision matrix. The decision matrix has two angle. We make a decision either from a place of fear or love. The goal is through the process of unlearning diet culture to shift our choices more towards love than fear. Because every time we first assume that we're making a choice, we are in our power and we decide to engage in restrictive behavior or destructing behavior of dieting, we're not doing it from a place of love. Just assume that we're doing it from a place of fear. Mm -hmm. And the ultimate goal of unlearning diet culture is to shift from fear to love. And that's the process of the journey, building the tool set that will allow you to move away from fear into love. Mm-hmm. And it is a journey. Yes. Well, you have to unlearn and then relearn. Mm-hmm. Be- because most of us have only been exposed to data points and information from diet culture and patriarchy or wellness culture most recently. Yeah. We don't know anything else. We could have a whole other podcast about that. (laughs) Oh my God, Stephanie, thank you so much. This was just, I mean, so inspiring, so thought provoking. And I just appreciate you 
and your truth and and who you are and your passion for this work so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity and for having this conversation and to asking the right question that allow me to unfold very intelligently my passion instead of just ranting and raving. <laughs> well, it would have been okay if you ranted and raved, but we love that here too. Where can everybody find you, connect with you? Everybody who's listening, make sure you connect with Stephanie. She's freaking awesome if you don't know that already by now. So the first place since we're on a podcast would be my podcast. So going beyond the food show is a podcast that's been operating for five years now. So we have over 280 episodes. So go there. And then we offer a roadmap. If you want to come into my world, we offer a roadmap to guide you through our top episodes. So sign up for the roadmap. You'll get onto my community and then we'll, you'll be able to take a journey into the podcast. Amazing. I love that so much. And we'll link everything in the show notes so that it's easy for everybody to access to. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Thank you for the opportunity. It was nice meeting you. That's our show. Thank you to our producer, Stephanie Olea, our show manager, Shayla Anderson, and our incredible guest. If you want to stay connected and learn more about our guest today, click the show notes of this episode. And if this conversation resonated with you, please share it with a friend or leave a review so that we can continue to destigmatize these important conversations around our relationship with food and body and spread inspiration to more women. One last thing, please don't forget to hit subscribe so that you can save time and stay on top of each new episode every week. I'm sending you so much love, confidence, and strength. Talk to you soon.